Welcome to News in Context. I'm Gina Valeria. In this episode, we talk with Glenn Kessler, editor and chief writer of the Washington Post Fact Checker. Credited with doing the first official fact check during the 1996 presidential campaign ahead of a debate between Bill Clinton and Bob Dole. Kessler is also co-author of the book Donald Trump and His Assault on Truth, The President's Falsehoods, Misleading Claims, and Flat-Out Lies, which chronicles and examines the falsehoods Trump has uttered throughout his presidency. Kessler's approach to fact-checking had to change during the years Trump was president, prompting him and his team to create a separate database to catalog and deal with the average of 15 false claims Trump made per day. While still endeavoring to explore and contextualize fact checks from other politicians based on policy. Welcome, Glenn. Talk to me a little bit about your work at the Washington Post and how you came to be the editor of The Fact Checker. There's kind of a two part story to that. I was hired at the Washington Post in 1998 as national business editor. And uh, previously, I'd been the White House correspondent for Newsday. I did a couple of years as an editor. Then I moved to be the chief economic correspondent, which I did for a couple of years. And then I was for nine years the chief diplomatic correspondent. And then I took over the fact checker. Now, just to back up a bit, when I was at Newsday, before I was the White House correspondent, I was the chief political correspondent in 1996. And I wrote what is generally regarded like the first full-fledged fact check in a newspaper, because I was very frustrated by the fact that I would write these art, you know, stories about on the campaign trail, about what Bill Clinton said or what Bob Dole said. And often they would say, I'd quote them and then I'd say, but actually this is not right because X, Y, Z. And they would often get cut for space. So I, I, I went to the editors and said, you know, before the first debate, why don't I take all those bits and pieces, you know, all these things they say on the road, because people are going to hear these lines in the debate. And I will say whether or not what they're saying is correct. You know, and I did it, economy, foreign policy, what have you. Uh, and it was a huge hit. Readers really appreciated it. So then when I joined the Washington Post, and it was in 2000 campaign, I went to the Post and said, why don't I do something similar? for the first debate. And then I did fact checks during each, after each debate. I did that in 2004 as well. Then 2008 campaign, um, when I was running around the world being diplomatic correspondent, um, one of my former colleagues, his name was Michael Dobbs, and he had come to the post with an idea for like a regular fact check feature to run during the campaign. And Michael would left the post, but he was between books. He's a very distinguished historian. So he came up with the concept of the fact checker and the Pinocchios and everything like that. And I helped him occasionally, particularly on debate nights. When the election ended, Michael, you know, his contract ended and he went back to writing books. And the editors noticed that there was still tremendous interest on the web in Michael's old fact checks because people were Googling for information. So that's the point when the editors came to me and said, you always were doing that fact check stuff on the side, but how about if you revived the fact checker and made it a, it made it a regular feature that covered not just, wasn't tied to the presidential campaign, but you know covered all politicians. So 
I started doing that at the beginning of 2011, essentially 10 years ago. So that's the kind of dual track way as to how this happens. No, I love that. And it's really having its moment now, you know, I mean, over the past few years. And because I think people are craving like journalism that does hold power to account. I think people are craving just that very simple CNN Chiron of, you know, Donald Trump said this, he didn't, right? You know, like just that really simple, like people just want, they seem to anyway, want that. Like you talked about people searching the old fact checks and really consuming your content. And so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, I mean, you, you touched on it when you started the fact checking, how frustrating it was to lose for space, the stuff that you were trying to hold account. Now you're doing this work in essence full time. Why is it important to you and what are your goals as the fact checker? From the beginning, I mean, I was very much always a policy oriented reporter. So the fact checker has always been very much a policy oriented feature so that we used a quote for checking as kind of a jumping off point to explain the intricacies of complex government policy. In the Trump era, it's you know, a little unmoored from that because Trump is never serious about any kind of policies. And one of the reasons why we started the database, which now consumes our life, of every factual misstatement he makes was so that we wouldn't get distracted from the core function of writing policy because we'd say, well, that stupid thing by Donald Trump, we just put it in the database. You know, it's just like, series of dumb tweets or things that we can just say, no, this is not right because X, Y, Z. Because ordinarily the fact checker, fact check was, you know, a thousand words and delve deeply into issue of health policy. Because the thing is, politicians speak in shorthand. And what we try to do is demystify what they're talking about and explain it. And so, you know, during the Obama years, it was very policy focused particularly when you're trying to fact check a president like Obama, who would, he would obviously make his mistakes or try to stretch the truth, but it was often grounded in something as it compared to Trump, who just makes it up. Right. So <laughs> anyway, well, well, I kind of feel like with, with Biden, we'll get back to that old yeah. version of that, yeah. you know, because we won't be you know, chasing their tails about his latest idiocy, you know, tweeted out by the president at midnight. Well, I think that's an interesting point because the fact check was meant to contextualize. It was meant to offer a deeper insight into policy and into what's really going on. And have you felt like you've been able to do that over the past four years? Have you felt that, or have you felt like you mentioned the term chasing or this database was supposed to be a thing on the side, but it's become a thing. Uh, you know, how, how has your job shifted? I, and I realize it might shift again, but how has it shifted in this uh, current presidency? Well, I mean, it, certainly it's it's become much more of a, actually Trump, you know, we're known for giving these Pinocchios, but we often do roundups, you know, there's quick takes because, you know, Trump in a news conference said 25 things that were totally false. And in most cases, we don't end up giving Pinocchios there, just running through 25 things he said, dismissing them in a few sentences. And the database is certainly, I mean, we're now trying to catch up, but he's making about 500 false or misleading claims a week. So imagine reading all that stuff, categorizing it, and then fact-checking it. We're doing it now to finish it and complete the project, but it's just, you know, as before you'd spend, you know, you might spend several days examining whether or not what some congressman said about a health care issue was correct or not. The problem is that Trump 
Trump was never in the Trump administration generally, except for someone like Stephen Miller, who did care about immigration policy. Most of the people who worked for Trump didn't care about policies. It was all just attitudes. So there wasn't really much to, you know, during the healthcare debate, there was a pretty substantive period of right talking about policy issues and guaranteed issue and pre-existing conditions and stuff. But the last couple of years, it's been mostly, I mean, it was good covering the Democrats because there, there was actually some substance to fact check. Well, are you looking forward to moving into a back or either back into or forward into a, a different way of fact checking? Or are you going to miss it? No, I'm not going to miss Trump in the least. <laughs> no, me neither. <laughs> we did get a book out of Trump. <laughs> The database, the database was worth something. Yeah, there, there you go. Well, and on that note, obviously, when you're fact checking people, you know, some people take it and then like you won an award from people that you fact checked. But but all, sometimes people are like, hey, wait, why are you picking on me? So I wanted to ask you about that issue of bias and how do you respond when someone says, hey, you're being biased. Why are you picking on us or why aren't you picking on that that side or whatever? You know, um, I think most of the professionals around Washington understand that we don't take sides. They're outside readers that are very partisan that, you know, get scream at us if we attack someone on the left or scream at us if we attack someone on the right. But most people recognize we don't play favorites. I mean, Trump is just so overwhelmed the system. I mean, he's probably earned more Pinocchios than all other politicians combined, totally. But it used to be, you know, we were just looking for interesting things to fact check, but generally it worked out, it was like 50-50 in terms of the number of fact checks for Democrats or Republicans. And the ratings weren't necessarily that different, you know, the average rating, because we're really just looking for things that will illuminate issues for people. And, you know, the other thing is we don't try to play gotcha. So we have a standing policy that if we go to a politician and say, you were wrong about this. And they say, yes, you're right, I made a mistake. If they were actually to say that, we won't give Pinocchios. We're still doing a fact check, but we'll say since they few politicians ever took us up on that offer until this last campaign cycle when the Democrats were eager to to, to show that they had some <laughs> some ethics and morals. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Unlike <laughs> Trump, yes. <laughs> but I you know, there was once a very prominent member of Congress who openly admitted to me that. He was on Meet the Press and he said something that was completely wrong. And I said, well, OK, I don't have to give the he said, no, I'd rather take the Pinocchios to admit error. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I want to get to the question of the watchdog role of journalism and the importance of it. And so your book is a great example. The, the title is explicitly it's explicitly truthful. The assault on truth. Right. And it is a conversation that people are having about journalism and what it should be. Should it be, quote, objective, which doesn't exist? Or or should we be giving context to, as you're doing with the fact checker? And so with that in mind, I'd love to hear from you about how you view the watchdog role of journalism or the role of journalists. You know, the whole point is accountability journalism. You know, one of the gratifying things in the 10 years I've done this is, you know, when I first started, there were very few fact-checking organizations around the world. In the U.S., there was PolitiFact, there was factcheck.org, and that was about it. You know, occasionally, you know, ABC or CNN might do something, uh, one or two other places overseas. But 
since then, there's been this explosion. Duke University Census, there are now more than 400 fact-checking organizations around the world. They've spread across Africa. They've spread across South America. And I've done some training in Morocco and Panama of people who are trying to set up fact-checking organizations. And a lot of it is, this is a way, it's like an entry-level way to do basic accountability journalism. And it's particularly even in countries that don't have tremendous press freedom. In Turkey, uh, Erdogan has like attacked all sorts of news organizations, but he has pretty much left the fact checkers alone. And I, in part, that's because they hold everyone accountable. Traditional European news organization is, is more like, you know, there's the left leaning paper or there's the paper associated with this political party or that political party. And the, so fact checking is, is available to be a, a neutral party. The fact checkers in Turkey may attack Erdogan's party, but they also attack the opposition. So it provides a level of credibility. We play no favorites. You're listening to News in Context. I'm Gina Valeria. We're talking with Glenn Kessler, editor and chief writer of The Washington Post Fact Checker and co-author of Donald Trump and His Assault on Truth, The President's Falsehoods, Misleading Claims, and Flat-Out Lies. You know, I'm on the board of the International Fact-Checking Network, where we, we have a set of standards and guidelines that people must meet to be a verified member. And one of the standards is you must treat you know, all, you must fact-check all political parties and not, not show any kind of bias. Yeah, without fear or favor. Right. What are your biggest challenges when you're doing this work? Well, the biggest challenge is to make sure you have all the information you need in order to make a judgment. Because the one big difference with fact-checking, Michael Dobbs, the guy who created the fact-checker, he actually did a report 10 years ago or so for the New America Foundation about you know, the beginning of fact-checking. The big thing is, in the end, you make a judgment. And that's different from traditional reporting, which is... He says this, she says that, you know, the Republican says that, Democrat says that, and there's no real judgment. But with fact-checking at the end, you sit there and say, all right, we've looked at the facts and here's what the truth is. So you want to make sure you have all the information you need in order to make that judgment. Would you say that traditional reporting should be a he said, she said thing? I think fact-checking has actually influenced traditional reporting particularly in the age of Trump, where people are much feel much more willing to say, actually, what the president just said was false, which is not what you saw before then. And fact-checking was, I always said we were, you know, we were not a supplement to the political reporting of the Washington Post, we were a complement. So there's the news conference, and there's a straight report of what was said at the news conference, and then we would take something that the president said and explained why that was, you know, exaggerated or not correct. It was a separate thing. But increasingly in the age of Trump, that's because Trump is so off the charts bad with the truth. You will see that in the course of reporting the news conference, they will say, well, this is wrong and that's wrong. And this is why the kind of thing that I had wanted to do back in 1996 when I was covering the Clinton and Dole on the campaign trail. For young journalists, what are some of the things you want them to know, especially with regard to this fact checking or this navigating misinformation? The main thing is you just have to verify everything. Just because it's in the New York Times doesn't mean that it's true. Just because it's in the Washington Post doesn't mean it's true. And often if there's a fact 
that seems fantastic, there's probably a reason for that. So I'll give an example, which was a story I did. Um, lost all track of time with the pandemic, but I guess maybe now it's almost two years ago. This was a front page story in the Washington Post during the whole debate over funding for Trump's border barrier. And in the front page Washington Post article, it said 70% of women who travel through Mexico on the way to the U.S. border are raped. And I said, God, that's a that's an amazing statistic. How is that statistic possible? Checking it, it was I think the post story attributed it to Amnesty International. Amnesty International says, where did Amnesty International get this? So <laughs> first step, Amnesty International. Amnesty International says, that's not our figure. We didn't come up with that figure. But all over the internet and all over the web and in many, many news stories, it was listed as an Amnesty International figure. Now, it turns out there was an Amnesty International report that buried in it, cited it to some, something else. So I started following the footnotes and it got worse and worse the further I followed, because you know that took me to a particular report, which took me to another report. It was kind of like a game of telephone because eventually it was like two citations down. It was like 70% of women traveling to Mexico are raped or have sexual assault. It got a little weaker. Eventually came to a report that cited a book saying this. So I couldn't find the book in the library. I had to buy it off Amazon. The ridiculous thing is that this was a statistic on the front page of the Washington Post in 2019 and all over the place. But by now I had gotten to a citation that was taking me back to a book that was published 30 years ago. Anyway, when I get to the book, without listing any source whatsoever, it says 70% of women traveling in Mexico have some sort of sexual experience during their travels, including having a boyfriend. Now, if it's a coerced boyfriend, that is something, but- No, 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 yeah, it was not. It was yeah. like, rather than that. That was the first like, Wow. And I did track down the guy who wrote the book. He said he didn't remember who the source was. He thought it was this particular professor. But even so, it was like 30 years ago. And the thing is, you sometimes have these kind of nonsense statistics that float around and find that reporters are, can be astonishingly lazy. There's a statistic, and they saw it. It was in the Washington Post, you know, or in the New York Times. Or it's, it's our shorthand. It's like, right. it's got to be checked, right? Someone checked it. It's just a basic lesson. You have to verify everything. It's just because you see it. And I've had a number of cases like that where I just start to pull on the string and, you know, and it usually takes me back 30, 40 years to some half-assed estimate or poorly done thing, but it's just gotten cited and cited and cited again. And people, they need a statistic. So particularly for young journalists, you just can't trust it. You have to double check it yourself. There are so many more lessons in there than that, like the 70% statistic. The fact that you noticed in the first place that that felt odd or off somehow and then took the road followed the wormhole like that that's curiosity that's just uh awareness that lesson of noticing being aware enough to realize something doesn't jive and then actually following the road i've been a reporter for decades so i mean you learn by doing and you just have to keep digging and my 
kids have heard me say it ad nauseum, basic rule of journalism, the only dumb question is the question not asked. You know, and the way, of course, the cliche, you know, if your mother says she loves you, check it out. Yes. <laughs> but it's my favorite. I, I, I prefer to think about the, the only dumb question is one not asked. Because a lot of times people are afraid to say that they don't know something. I mean, I first got started in journalism. I was at some, the Wall Street letter, like a little newsletter for Wall Street guys, kind of a sweatshop journalism thing in New York. And I was on the phone with some banker and he's talking about a thrift this and a thrift that. And I'm thinking, what the hell is he talking about, a thrift? And so I say, what's a thrift? And the guy suddenly says, who is this? How could you be working for the Wall Street Letter if you don't know what a thrift is? And he hangs up on me. He then calls back like 30 seconds later and I answered the phone and said, so it really is you. He said, I just thought I wasn't really talking to a reporter. And I said, well, no, it was an innocent. I said, the only dumb question is a question I've asked. I just don't know what a thrift is. I'm new at this job. And he says, okay, all right. A thrift, it's a shorthand for a savings and loan. Okay. And the guy actually eventually became a good source of mine because, you know, you'd invested the time, which is often the case. I often found like, if they, someone feels like they invested time with you, they could become a good source. But anyway, you don't know the answer. Find it out. I love that. The only dumb question is a question not asked. So you've dealt with, I think, more than a lot of other journalists or a lot of other people in, on the planet, the onslaught of misinformation that we're currently experiencing in this moment in time. And that goes beyond just the Trump saying things that flat out aren't true. It's also, you know, misinformation outlets cropping up to... Um, look like news outlets and then peddle information and people like wide swaths of the country getting information they think is true but is actually biased or cultivated to to mislead. So I'm wondering if you have a response to uh, how does the journalism industry deal with this current moment? How do we handle it? One big consequence of the Trump era is that he has tried very hard to delegitimize mainstream journalists and to basically say we're, we're fake news and should not be listened to. So there's a real rebuilding effort there. And you can see like both the Post and the Times have done things. There's now a bio underneath each article and there's like a, you can get a link and you can see, yes, this person went to these universities or wrote these books to kind of say, it's not just an anonymous name, but there's actually someone with a little bit of credibility there. But I'm not sure it necessarily works with people. The key thing is the spread of misinformation depends on people becoming more sophisticated about the information that they receive. And that's a long-term project, and it's going to require, particularly in helping make people that are now kids become more aware and be, be in, a, in effect, like their own fact-checkers. It's an education thing. Now, I don't know what you do about my generation or the even older I mean, we're hopeless. We can't be trained at all. <laughs> and, you know, I know there's some places that are, have tried to give like news literacy programs and things like that, but it's difficult. And the main thing is just human nature. You are more accepting of information that matches what you already believe, that matches your preconceived notions. And the problem is social media companies like Twitter or Facebook 
they've built algorithms. Like if you're clicking on lots of left-wing stuff, you're going to get more left-wing stuff. So it gets you further into the cul-de-sac of your own little echo gallery. Whenever I speak to students, I always I implore them. I say, you know, diversify your social media feeds. You'll learn more from people you disagree with than from the people you agree with. So I always say, if you, if you lean to the left, follow a bunch of conservatives. If you're conservative, follow a bunch of people on the left. I mean, otherwise, you're just going to get a really warped view of the world. I mean, you know, I mean, imagine someone right now that's only watching one American news and there's a Twitter feed that's, you know, on the right. You would think Trump had like a victory of historic proportions. Yeah, it's a... Uh... I do some media literacy work as well. And and one of the things we've come to, or I, I've always believed, but we've come to is this idea of it's it's also about engagement and relationships. You have to relate with people. You can't just sit there and learn the the checklist. But if you can engage across the difference, you can moderate your views. What journalism means to you? Why journalism? Why did you choose this? I wanted to be a journalist ever since I was in fifth grade. You know, I like being a writer. And I thought as a journalist, you would be able to witness important events, which is true. You know, I was on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange when the stock market crashed in 1987. I was, you know, in Indonesia, right, Bando Aceh, right after the tsunami. I was in Kenya for the signing of the Sudan Peace Accords. I was in Fallujah after the, you know, Marines were there. And, and the great thing about Journalism is, you know, you can kind of reinvent yourself every few years with a different beat and different expertise. So, What do you think journalism is currently doing well and where is it falling short? Where do you want to see it improve? I think the kind of accountability journalism that has been built up during the Trump years has been rather extraordinary. So I think that's, that's doing well. I mean, where is it falling short? We can always do our best to weed out bias. I mean, there is bias of some sort, one way or the other, within journalism. Not, not, not in terms of bias, in terms of the way we necessarily write stories, but in terms of the subjects that we pick and how we explore them. So, you know, one thing that The Post has done this year is named an assistant managing editor for diversity. She's African-American, and she has a mandate to make sure that, you know, we hire a very diverse pool of people and we cover a very diverse set of issues. One of the first projects that she spearheaded, this extraordinary series of stories, it was eight stories, George Floyd's life and what it meant to be a black person in America. So it explored, like he grew up in a neighborhood where there was little chance of escape. He went through a schooling system where there was no chance of education. He got stuck in the jail system where there was little escape. And by all accounts, he was actually a high-functioning, intelligent man. But the series showed the constant roadblocks that systemic racism had put in his way. So when I talk about bias, it's not saying it's written with a liberal stand, just that the biggest problem that journalism faces is story selection, story play, and story coverage is dictated by the backgrounds and attributes of the people in charge. And we're trying to do better, but it's still mostly a 
white male world. All right. So my student walks into your newsroom or your fact check editor, editor's office, and what do you need from them? What do you want to see from your young journalists, your interns, when they walk in? Oh, I don't have interns. But oh, you don't have interns. Okay, fine. <laughs> <laughs> Marsha Burst has interns, but I don't get interns. Okay, fine. The people that I've hired to work with me, generally, I look for people that have had a background in covering state or local government and have gotten used to probing and asking questions of politicians. So the guy who is my sidekick now, he previously covered Chris Christie when he was governor of New Jersey. And the woman that had the job before that covered Joe Arpaio. She was at the Arizona Republic. But those were both, there they were in the field, grossly scrutinizing what controversial politicians were doing. Thank you to my guest, Glenn Kessler, editor and chief writer of the Washington Post Fact Checker and co-author of Donald Trump and His Assault on Truth, President's Falsehoods, Misleading Claims, and Flat Out Lies. Music in this episode includes Spring Fling by Track Tribe and The Heist by Silent Partner. In addition to hearing news in context every Friday at 8.30 a.m. and 6.30 p.m. on KSFP 102.5 in San Francisco, you can hear it on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, iHeartMedia, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Podbean, YouTube, and PRX. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at News in Context SF and on Instagram at News in Context. And you can find links to all of that at newsincontext.net. I'm Gina Valeria. Thank you for listening.